Well, welcome everybody. Thanks for coming as we start this series on heaven. The title is A Glimpse of Heaven, and the reason for that is, well, one is uh, we've only got four weeks to do a little bit of a survey of, of heaven, and two, the Bible tells us a lot about some things and only a little bit about other things about heaven, and so uh, we're going to get a glimpse of heaven as we go through this, and uh, we're going to start in the in the book of John. This is going to be our theme verse for tonight, John 14. So if you go ahead and turn there. I'm going to, since we're kind of doing a little theology of heaven rather than teaching on a book, we're going to move around the Bible a lot. Probably only going to ask you to go to a couple different places, John, Isaiah, and Revelation, and then. but I'm going to read a lot of other ones, Just, but otherwise we'll be here all night, which is fine for me, but for you guys, I'm not sure you want to be here all night on this, but it could get exciting. John 14, starting in verse 1, we're going to read 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So we have a promise from our Lord and Savior regarding heaven. Um, the topic, just in the sense of what, you know, why we pick the topic, or I mean, for me, it started ten years ago. One night, putting Joshua, who's now thirteen, so he was probably three then, and Connor to bed, and we were saying our prayers, and Joshua says. Daddy, tell me everything you know about heaven. Okay, and so I started thinking about what all do I know. And, you know, there's a lot of things I thought I knew, but how much of them were from the Bible was, uh, I remember a song. I used to, when I first uh, confessed Jesus as Lord back in 1977, I was in a small church and um, actually stood in front and did worship with other people. I've never done that since, by the way. Um, But uh, I remember a friend uh, who was there discipling me uh, in those early days wrote a song about heaven. I still remember the one verse. You know, streets paved with gold and love all around. No unclean thing to be found. Just a fountain of love and the presence of the Lord. And uh, here we are 20, how many years later, 30 years later, and it's still in my head, still goes around. And so when he asked that question, you know, that's where streets paved with gold love, the presence of the Lord, but we want to spend a little bit of time and see what the Bible says about it. In fact, I mean, they did a Gallup poll in 2007, and the results of that poll was that 81% of adult Americans believe in heaven, Okay, which is amazingly up from 10 years earlier. 10 years earlier, it was 72%, but uh, more people um, believing in heaven 80% 80% of those that were surveyed thought they were going there. Uh, now, 
it's interesting that there was 1% that didn't think they were going there. So, was, so they believed in it, but they knew they weren't going there in their mind. 30% um, of those people don't believe in a hell, so they believed in the heaven side of it, but they don't believe in the hell side of it. But what was interesting is during the same time frame, those who believed in God decreased 4%. And so the strange dichotomy, more people believed in the concept of heaven, but that God wasn't there. Somebody else or something, something else created this. And so um, part, part of that comes from uh, at least the belief in heaven, I think, is uh, from a lot of the books that have been out for the last number of years. We have a lot of near-death experience books written, right? Uh, you have Heaven is for Real, which is a pretty recent one from a couple years ago, To Heaven and Back, uh, 90 Minutes in Heaven by Don Piper, not John Piper, but Don Piper. So you have these, these kind of like celestial travelogues, if you will, of, um, of what it meant to go to heaven and come back, because these people supposedly died or near death and, and came back. The problem was their stories, well, they didn't agree. right? In one account, the Holy Spirit was blue. In another account, the Holy Spirit was white. Um, the Bible, the Holy Spirit's invisible. Um, in one account, the Holy Spirit had wings. In another account, the Holy Spirit didn't have wings. In one account, people didn't talk in heaven. They just communicated telepathically. In another one of these, people talked. And then another one, people talk, but they talk with angelic musical uh, language. And so you have a problem when you've got these near-death experiences that they come back as their stories don't agree. Um, and John MacArthur, in his uh, pretty known way, has uh, a quote regarding these. I'm just going to read you the quote so I can attribute it to him, but before 1995, no reputable Christian publisher would have seriously considered publishing any book about heaven that was based on a mystical experience someone had while clinically dead. But incredibly, the best-known top-selling celestial travelogues today are practically all produced and aggressively marketed by major evangelical publishers. They are written by authors who profess faith in Christ, they specifically target biblically believing Christians, and all of them are teeming with false, flawed, and fanciful notions about heaven. And so what we want to do, and the goal of the next four weeks, is to take a biblical approach to heaven, to understand what it does tell us about it. There's going to be questions, especially as we get to the end. We're going to kind of gear, we're going to kind of answer some questions. In fact, as we go through this, if questions come in your mind, I'd like you to write them down. Email me, Pastor Jim at reverencechurch.org, and either of the last two, I want to answer all of those questions. So it'll give me some time to prepare for them and, and so on. But we have these questions, you know, are there going to be animals in heaven? Am I going to recognize my loved ones and have all these questions that come up? They're very common, and we want to address those. Um, but we want to address them from a biblical standpoint. Some of them, there's allusions in the in the Bible that give us a clue and we just have to figure out what's the best way to, to deal with it biblically. Some of them there's definite answers and some of them there's no answers and so we're still going to find out when we get there. So um, Jonathan Edwards, you know the most considered the greatest American theologian who each year 
uh, in his resolutions, he had a list of resolutions that uh, he had, and he um, had this resolution regarding heaven. Resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. And so he knew that there's some aspect of the enjoyment of heaven on the other side, somewhat related to the aspects of, of how we live and think about God and, and do that here. Um, C.S. Lewis said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. And so I want us to think of the next and be Christians that do the most for this world as we, as we go on in our congregation. When your children, grandchildren, students ask these questions, you can answer them with some authority and not just sing a song that you remembered 30 years ago in the sense. So here we go. We're going to talk about heaven. And right off the bat, we get in trouble because heaven has multiple different meanings in the Scripture. And so you have to look at context to see what you're talking about. First, um, it talks about the atmosphere. So the, the general atmosphere that we have, the air, uh, before we get to the vacuumus of, of space. Um, it talks in Genesis when talking about the flood and so on, like we're raining down from heavens, the rain and so on. And so we have an atmospheric heaven. We also have above that a planetary heaven. Genesis creation account tells us that God created the heavens and the earth and put the stars in the firmament, stars out there. So we have a you know a a heaven that relates to what we would say outer space, if you will. But then we get into some different things. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12.2, talks about going to the third heaven. Um, and he uses the word called paradise with that. And he tells us that he heard God's voice while he was there. And he also tells us that it was so spectacular that he could not utter what he heard there. And so we have a third heaven that... Uh, basically is what we consider when we talk about and talk about heaven, we're talking about that place of where God dwells. And um, But what's interesting about it is we kind of have this thought that, okay, well, the first atmospheric heaven, and then there's the outer space heaven, and then, well, the third heaven must be beyond that, right? So it's way, way, way out there, 14.5 uh, billion light years away or, or something of that nature. And so I'm going to challenge us if that's really true, um, you know, we're, look at the Bible. We're gonna we're gonna see some examples. Um, well, we know Elisha. If you remember the story of Elisha watching Elijah go up into heaven on a chariot, wheels of fire, and it goes up into the heavens. And I, do we think that chariot went 14.5 billion light years through space to get there? And I don't think we probably really think that. Um, the apostles after Jesus' ministry, after his resurrection, watched him ascend into heaven into a cloud. And where did he go from the cloud? Um, Stephen, martyred, the first you know, martyr for the, for the church, as he's being stoned, says he looks up and he sees the heavens opened up. And he sees Jesus standing there. 
and he commends his spirit to Jesus as the heavens opened up. And so maybe what we need to think about is that heaven is really in a different realm, a different dimension. Uh, scientists today, the physicists, think that we are in a world that has four visible or experiential dimensions and six or seven uh, dimensions that we can't see or don't consciously know about. All the mathematics of physics points to a 10 or 11 dimensional universe. Um, interestingly enough, the Bible kind of gives a little bit of clue about that, well, not necessarily the number, but if you remember Elisha and the Assyrian army is attacking Israel and Elisha has his servant and he the servant wakes up in the morning and there's a Syrian army around them and they're just you know looking like they're going to get wiped out. And Elisha says, don't worry about that. The more that are for us are against than, than those against us. And he prays, Lord, open his eyes. And the Lord opened his eyes and he saw angels and chariots of fire surrounding the camp where God's army of angels was there to attack and do their work with the Assyrian army. The eyes were open. We, he wasn't transported 14.5 billion, you know, 14 billion light years away. It was right there in that realm. His eyes were open. Stephen's eyes were opened. And so we're probably talking about a different dimension. We're probably talking about a spiritual realm. That's where the angels are doing what they do right now. Um, when Daniel was praying in, in uh, Babylon... And uh, the angel Gabriel was sent to him with a message. message and, and he said, the angel said, well, I was delayed for, I think it was 21 days or something because he was battling uh, the fallen angels, the, the so on. And so there's a spiritual realm right next to us to a certain extent um, that we don't see. And probably heaven is also another spiritual realm that is right next to us in, in the sense of, it's a, it's a universe or a dimension that uh, God opens up and Stephen sees it and uh, Elisha's servant sees it, and, uh, it but it's probably not 14.5 billion light years out in the, in the distance. Um, that might also help us understand a little bit when we talk about the omnipresence of God. Um, it's not that he's way out there and has really good eyesight. It's that every... And in fact... Some, some theologians say, you know, when we think about the omnipresence of God, rather than saying He is everywhere, because then that goes, people take that into pantheism, that God is this and God is this, whatever. Some say, maybe we ought to look at it like everywhere is before God. That everything, that this entire dimension is before Him and He sees it all. And that helps me a little bit in understand it. I don't know which one it is. We can't say from the Bible. But we understand that God, in some aspect, understands every single thing that's, that's going on. He's omnipresent. And so, um, we also have another aspect of heaven. In terms of, well, even before that, heaven also speaks of itself. The Bible speaks of heaven as God himself. Uh, Jesus says... Um, to the leaders, he says, uh, with the baptism of John, it, was that from heaven or was it of man? And he's basically saying, is that of God 
or is that of man, the baptism of John. He says later on in in, uh, John 3.23, he talks about the gifts, every good gift from heaven, the good gifts from heaven. He's he's talking about God. James tells us that every good gift is from God. And so some aspects, the Bible talks about heaven is talking about God himself. And um, you just have to look at the context to kind of understand what it is, how it's dealing with these things. But then there's also an aspect of heaven that's time. Uh, Right now, what's going on in heaven? We usually call that an intermediate heaven. That's what the the terminology versus the eternal heaven, versus what's going to happen when things kind of culminate and goes on for eternity. They are different. We'll talk more about that next next time. But uh, intermediate versus long-term. Sometimes when people read the scriptures and they say these two things seem to contradict each other when it's about heaven. Well, maybe because one is talking about the intermediate heaven, what's going on right now in heaven versus the eternal heaven that's going to come about. A lot of people think heaven is just this kind of ethereal thing where you know, you're just kind of sitting there in this daze for all eternity, playing a harp or sitting on a cloud or doing something like that. But let's go to our scripture. Let's see, there's some clues here in this. It says, let not your heart not be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or in other many dwelling places, many rooms. Um, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Heaven's a place. Jesus promises that heaven is a place. It's not in a, this kind of just you know, non-existent kind of days that's up there. It's a place. And the place has a house of God there. And you have a room there. And you have a place there or a mansion there, depending upon how we look at that. Now, you know, when, when I first thought about this, I thought, well, I like the mansion part. The room part, you know, I'd rather have the mansion than the room. I started thinking about that a little bit. But kind of understanding if you like uh, kind of Victorian novels of of that time of England, where was the best place in England to be residing? I mean, you could have had a mansion out in the country estate, you know, and and so on. But kind of a mansion out in the country estate, somewhat was kind of with country bumpkin kind of thing in in the, the English literature in that time of the place to be was in the royal court of the king. To reside in the royal palace, a room in the royal palace was far above and away, above having a mansion out. In the because you were there. I mean, when the when dinner was served, you got to have that that dinner prepared for the king's table. You were there while the king was making the decisions. You may even be asked what you thought about it. The the court was the place to be, and this is what is promising us that we're going to have a dwelling place in the court house, the court of God, that, that, that palace, whatever that looks like next time when we look at it, we have a place there. We may not spend all of our time there. We may be doing other things, but when time comes, that's your home. That's your, that's your final dwelling place, the court of the king. Um, some people don't believe that. I, I, re- I mean, i trying to answer that question for Josh. You know, I collected a, uh, a pile of books about heaven. Um, one of, some good, 
some not so good. I got one from a Christian author uh, who believed heaven was a divine hard drive. Um, that that all of our experiences in life were going to be put into a computer program, and heaven for us were just bits of ones and zeros on this cosmic hard drive that would, uh, and your heaven would be different from my heaven because my heaven could be different from yours because it's just a computer program. And this was serious. I mean, I can't believe I bought this, but if I had known, but, you know, I mean, this is a Christian author who just was a kind of techno, beyond techno, hyper techno. But no, it's not a hard drive, it's a place. It's a place we get to go. It's a place we get to dwell. Um, and it's promised to us. And it's promised that He will come back. He said, if this weren't true, I would have told you. If, there, if this wasn't a place, I would have told you. If I wasn't going to come back and receive you, I would have told you. I'm coming back to get you when the time comes. And I'm taking you to a place. And it's a place in the heavenly court. And so let's look a little bit about that right now. So we're going to go to the intermediate heaven right now. Okay, what's going on right now? And uh, turn to Isaiah, if you would. Go to Isaiah 6. And what we, what we get in two different places in the Scripture, once in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament, we get this view into what's going on into heaven. And um, it may be um, exciting, maybe different than what we think about. But Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of Him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. Which was Isaiah. This, this look into the throne room. Who's on the throne? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw him. The Lord Jesus Christ, it says in Colossians, is the image of the invisible God. When we see God... We see Jesus Christ. He's seeing the Lord Jesus Christ pre-incarnate, sitting on the throne, being worshipped by angels. Right? In fact, this temple, however big it is, and we'll, you know, his his robe, the train of his robe, fills the temple. It's a glorious sight, and it's one where if our iniquity isn't taken away, hadn't been taken away, we wouldn't be able to be there. But we get to see it. We get to be there. Let's turn to Revelation 5. We're going to see another little view into the throne room. It's a little bit later. This is after Jesus' incarnation, resurrection. Revelation 5, verse 1. 
going to read chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. You were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Another look into the throne room. There, our Lord and Savior on the throne, the Lamb that was slain. And He is worthy to take that scroll. What's that scroll? I believe that scroll, and we get when you go and do a study of Revelation, that scroll is the title deed to the earth and all the people in it. He's the only one that has the right to take possession of this earth and all that is within it. These two views of heaven, this intermediate heaven tonight, we're going to take a little bit of a look at who's there. And that's, that's really what we're going to... Who's in heaven? Who's there? And we're going to start... I don't know if, the, if this scene that we see is kind of... Like, I don't know if any of you were ever at Melody Land way back in the 70s. Melody Land it had the center stage, circular stage, and it was, everybody was around it. I don't know if it's like that where you know, we just huge circle around the throne or it's whatever. But we're going to work from the back forward. We're going to work from, you know, from the least stage to the center stage. And we're going to look at who's there. And the first one that's there that we saw in that, in that example is the justified. Okay? Us. Um, the, the Isaiah in the back looking in and seeing the angels or John in the back looking forward and seeing what was going on the throne. Those who are justified by faith in the true and living God. And, and some people have different opinions about this, but whether who it all encompasses at this point in time. But for my point, we have, I'm just looking at it as all believers. We have pre-Mosaic believers who are there. We know Enoch is there. It says in, in Genesis that he, he you know, lived for so many years and then uh, he walked no more and was with the Lord. It seems like something happened there very specially with Enoch that doesn't happen with the other people. We know from Romans 4 and 5 that Abraham is there. Um, we know, I think, from the account of the Mount of Transfiguration that Moses and Elijah are there. Uh, we know from other accounts that Samuel is there. David is there. The entire, I mean, Jesus' entire ministry and the, and the throne and the king is named you know, the son of David and the throne of David. Apostles. The, uh, 
the, the foundations, as we'll see next week, the very foundations of the city of the New Jerusalem have uh, you know, the names of the apostles in them. Stephen, we talked about Stephen. Plus, you know, right now, Luther or maybe Augustine or you know, whoever we might know from those who have professed faith in Christ, loved ones that we know that have gone on before us, Someday, hopefully, everybody here has placed their faith in Christ and Him alone, and each one of us will be there. Um, how do I, from, from Revelation 5, where do I get that? And I just want to spend one, one second on that, on that uh, song that was sung, and uh, particularly... They sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed, and here's the important word, and have redeemed us. And so, who is Christ redeemed? He um, didn't need to redeem the angels. They didn't. The ones of the angels that are there aren't fallen. He didn't need to redeem the angels. didn't need to redeem the foreign creatures around the throne. He's redeemed us. This is a picture of us before the throne of God. Um, right now, for those who have, have gone on before us. Some, now, I don't know, you may have a translation in front of you that doesn't say us, or may have a slightly different word, but let me, let me give you a, a strong incentive to believe that the word should be us. Uh, there's 24 Greek manuscripts that cover this section of Revelation. Of those 24, 23 say us. And one says them. Um, that's pretty heavy evidence that it should be us. So the thousands of Latin translations that come from the Greek translations, you know, in antiquity, um, of the, you know, I think there's something like eight to ten thousand Latin manuscripts of the ones that cover this scripture. One hundred percent say us. Um, this is us before the throne of God. This isn't angels. This is us standing before the throne, kneeling before the throne, face down before the throne. This is where we're going to be and um, where those who have gone before us are right now. Um, some other interesting things about this. Turn, since you're in Revelation, I promised Revelation. We'll go to Revelation 7. Um, it's not important that you necessarily eschatologically um, believe what I'm going to say, but I'm just going to tell you that I'm going to teach this from kind of a premillennial standpoint where I believe Jesus is actually going to come back on the earth and reign for a thousand years, literally. Um, it does come into play in certain verses we're going to look at the next four years. It's not critical that you believe that. You just have to find a different interpretation for some of the verses and how you're going to, how to deal with it. But... In Revelation 5, or 7, I'm sorry, starting with verse 9. And I do that for a reason, just to let you know. Like There's a verse in Isaiah that talks about um, the kings of the earth bringing over the seas their tribute to Jesus, King Jesus Christ. Okay? Um, well, that is, hasn't happened yet. I mean, I think we'd agree that hasn't happened yet. It can't happen in the eternal state. 
And you may ask why. Why can't it happen? Well, it can't happen because Revelation 21 says that in the new earth, there are no seas. So how are things brought over the seas to King Jesus if there are no seas? Um, There's a number of scriptures like that that go through that when we talk about those things. And you have to say, how do I deal with that if it's not literal? Um, and so that's how I'm going to approach it, just so you know when we go. And here's, here's the case where I'm going to do that in Revelation 7. But I just think it's a, this is a fabulous aspect of uh, what's coming. Verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. If you have a perspective of Scripture that you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture where all the believers are taken before the tribulation, this is an amazing Scripture of evangelism that's going to occur on the earth in these seven years where the number of people who are martyred for their faith in Christ is innumerable. Which also means that not only are they martyred, but they came to faith in the Lord during that time. It's a story of great evangelism. Now, how much is innumerable? And this is where it gets a little bit interesting. Just flip another couple pages. Flip over to chapter 9. It's talking about a battle, a battle of uh, a future battle during the tribulation and it says now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million well if the number in number in in verse 7 is innumerable but we have a number in verse 9 that's 200 million then the innumerable number needs to be greater than the 200 million right i mean kind of kind of goes with uh, with the territory um It's saying that during this period, during this time, some number, more than 200 million people will come to the Lord and be martyred for their faith. Um, In one aspect, very tragic. In one aspect, very glorious because God can work His plan of salvation out even in great times of great persecution and trouble. God has His plan and it's going to work work out that even the devil and that's who's given uh, some latitude during this time cannot thwart the plans of God now flip back a couple pages to Revelation 3 one other neat little thing about when we get there these are letters written to the church 
And we're going to go uh, to verse... Uh, we're going to go... We're going to, uh, let's see. 3.12 He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall no more go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Flip back one more. I'm going to keep to well, chapter two and my this one page back, verse seventeen. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. When you get there, you're going to get a new name that only you and Jesus know. Isn't that? I mean, when you look back at the apostles and, and the patriarchs, you know, he Abraham gets a new name. He was Abram, and then he's Abraham, and then Jacob is becomes uh, Israel, and and Paul, Saul becomes Paul, and and uh, Cephas becomes Simon Peter. He renames, you know, the, these. You're going to get a new name, and only you and Jesus know what that name. Is. That's how personal heaven is. It's not you're just going to be one of a mass of millions of people. You're going to be in a group known as the Bride of Christ, and you're going to get a new name that only you and Jesus know. And He's going to mark you. He's going to write His name on you. And he's going to mark the name of the city, New Jerusalem, on you. So you're all going to get tatted up a little bit in the future uh, with divine ink in some way. Um, but the name of God, Jesus, it's a new name for him that we will yet know in the future. We don't know what that is. And so we have the justified. Uh, going going towards center stage, the next group are the angels. Um, angels, you've got angels that are messengers, you know, like Angel Gabriel came down and told uh, Mary about, um, you know, the birth of Jesus and Elizabeth um, about the birth of John the Baptist. You've got angels that seem to do kind of like this, uh, got to watch, you know, this uh, limousine service where they are taking... Uh, Elijah up into heaven. Um, we've got uh, angels that seem to be guardian angels, as we talked about, uh, at least in the broad sense that those angels were encamped around uh, God's people, as we saw with uh, Elisha and his servant. Um, yeah, we've got, and, and those are kind of warrior angels. We've got these different kinds of angels that have different purposes that God uses them for and, and they're the next set that, that we see um, they Paul tells us you know that uh, Satan as a fallen angel can appear as an, as an angel of light uh, so we uh, or that uh, Paul you know exhorts us to make sure we have good hospitality because we may be entertaining angels without knowing about it so angels can take the appearance of, of humans how many angels? Well, let's go back to our Revelation 5. Look at that uh, 
that section again. Verse 5, verse 11, chapter 5, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Um, the, the underlying words here in the Greek give a little bit different translation aspect to this. Uh, there's two words um, that are underlying the word thousands. Uh, one of them is myrios, which we get the word myriad from. Another one is uh, kilios. Um, the myriad, the myrias, and the myriads um, have kind of two meanings. It was the largest number in Greek. So, like we we have whatever our largest number, septillion, billion, whatever that word is for the largest number that exists. Well, in the Greek, myriad was the largest number, word for a number, and it was for 10,000, and that's why it says 10,000 here, because that's, that's from a number standpoint is what it meant. But it also conveyed an innumerable number or an uncountable number. And uh, if we just wanted to do a little simple math here, it gets big numbers, but simple math, uh, the other thing about that in the in the Greek that it's not myriad singular, it's myriad plural times myriad plural, and so it's not really ten thousand times ten thousand; it's ten thousands times ten thousands. Um, so if we just want to do a little simple math, I mean, there's multiple plural of ten thousands. The minimum is two. What's the minimum number of angels around the throne? Well, if you take the minimum number, two sets of 10,000 times two sets of 10,000, which is 20,000 squared, is 400 million. Okay? And then it says, and, then it uses the, the uh, kilos, is and thousands of thousands. So, thousand times thousand. But guess what? Those are plural as well, so it's really... 2,000 at a minimum times 2,000, and those multiply out to 4 million. So the minimum number, if we just want to take what the minimum was, and not the innumerable number, but just the minimum, we say that there's 404 million angels surrounding the throne of God. If it really meant innumerable, it would be more than that number, because that's the minimum number. Of what the, what the, you don't use an innumerable for something that you can number. You use innumerable for something that's more than that. If we use kind of the number we saw elsewhere in Scripture, you know, that 200 million, you know, it's, that number would be somewhere like, you know, five quadrillion angels in heaven surrounding the throne. It's going to be big. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be loud. Because remember, they're all singing a song. Holy, holy, holy. I mean, have you ever have you ever gone to a baseball game? Like we just went to a baseball game on the Fourth of July. You ever gone to a baseball game? And they sing the national anthem and the jets fly over, and you get these goosebumps. Well, imagine you're sitting there in the throne room. Five quadrillion angels are singing "Holy, Holy, Holy." When the Bible says you go face down, you probably understand what that. I mean, it's just like just the pure magnitude of the worship that's going towards Jesus Christ at that point in time is just absolutely amazing. 
it's it's really even you can't even really think of it. And that's why scripture talks about things like we see dimly now, but we'll see then face to face. When 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 Moses was up on Sinai and he had the, the stones, he was getting the stones from the Lord and the handwriting, writing the Ten Commandments on or the law on the stones. And Moses says, Can I see you? Lord and says, Well, you couldn't handle seeing my glory, so I'll just show you my backside. Okay, and so backside and 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 Moses is just totally affected by that. I mean if if we were to believe the Ten Commandments and Charlton Hessen comes down, he went up with brown hair and he came down with gray hair, right? And it was all curly and whatever, just the the aspect of the glory of God we can't handle in our current bodies what it really is like. We really can't can't see that. But someday we will. Someday we're going to be there amongst those hundreds of millions to quadrillions of angels worshiping our Savior. That's not to say how many. We already talked about that there's at least, well, I mean, 250 million just out of um, this time period of great tribulation. If you believe that great tribulation is from the time Jesus went up to heaven, then it's 250 million for the church. If you believe it's a shorter period, it's, could be, I mean, there's 6 billion people, 7 billion people on the planet right now. Uh, there could be, you know, billions of redeemed amidst the quadrillion of angels before the throne singing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. And then we go to the next step, this next step of spiritual beings, and they're called living creatures. Um, well, we have seraphim. I'm sorry. Let's, seraphim are angels with six wings. The cherubim are angels with six wings. They're around the throne. The, these spiritual beings are kind of like throne attendants. I mean, their entire job is to attend to Jesus on the throne. Uh, we saw it in Isaiah. He talked about the seraphim there. And um, we see it here. Um, and then there's these other creatures, these four living creatures. God loves diversity. You know, I mean, you think that until recently, you know, the depths of the ocean, where, you know, if you watch the Discovery Channel and they take these subs down with these high-powered lights and they get film footage of these fish that are just brilliant in color and just amazing things, the only person to appreciate those for at least 6,000 years or so, is God. We couldn't see them. We didn't know them, but He just loves diversity. He, he loves to create. And He's got some strange ones here that He loves to create that are around His throne. The four living creatures. One that looks like a lion, that has the face of a lion. One that has the face of a calf, which probably means an ox or cattle of some type. The face of a man and the face of an eagle. And about their bodies are eyes and eyes and more eyes. And their entire existence from their creation to eternity, their entire existence is to attend the throne of God and say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come for all eternity. That God created them just to do that. Um, 
it seems, at least as we see from the scripture, it says that's in the scripture, and that's all they do. And in fact, not only that, it gets a little bit interesting. It says, whenever they start to do that, the elders fall down, face down, and say the same and worship the Lord. And I, I believe for reasons that that 24 elders is a representation of the redeemed. And so that, that those, of us, those who are in heaven are falling down with the four living creatures, worshiping God face down, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so we have throne attendants around the throne, and then we finally get to center stage. And um, heaven, I mean, the, the, the best short definition of heaven is the abode of God. It's where God dwells. Um, in some sense, in some scriptures, the abode of heaven is in our heart. In some sense, it was the tabernacle in the wilderness. God dwelled there in a special way. But scripture says that there's a special place and that's the third heaven, that God is. He's omnipresent, so He can be here with us. But there's a special way. His throne room is there. And as Solomon says, he says in 1 Kings 8.27, when he's uh, talking about um, the temple, is the temple cannot contain God, but God dwells there. God dwells there in a special way, but it doesn't contain Him. It doesn't constrain Him. So there, there's this omnipresent aspect of God that he is everywhere or everywhere is before him but he's also there in a special way and dwells there in a special way it's his center of operations Isaiah 57 15 says that God dwells in heaven the Lord's prayer our father who art in heaven we have a number of these throughout the New Testament where our father in heaven if I Jesus says that if I confess him before man, he will confess me before the Father in heaven. And so, and if I deny him before men, he will deny me before the Father in heaven. And so, we have the fathers in heaven, the Holy Spirit in Revelation 14. We hear the words of the Holy Spirit in heaven. He's there. But at least in this intermediate sense, this kind of the seems like the center focus is on Jesus Christ sitting on the throne, the Lamb that was slain, all this worship of all these quadrillion beings worshiping the Lamb, the one who would inherit, the judge, the Savior, the visible image of what makes up the being of God. His train fills that temple. Okay, that's a big robe because there's hundreds of millions of angels around it. That's got to be one big temple and it's got to be one big robe if it really fills that temple. And all of us there for the purpose of worshiping Him. I mean, that's, that's what this is all, all about. You know, the, the... Well, we sat down a couple nights ago at dinner and I, with the kids and I just said, well, we're going to teach on heaven for a few weeks. What do you think about when you think about heaven. And my littlest one, Jessie, today's her birthday. She's seven years old today. And she just says, Jesus! That's what I think about. I think about Jesus, about heaven, and that's the right answer. Okay? We think about heaven, 
As we go through these four weeks and we think about the, the focus is really about Jesus and worshiping Him and the many voices. And that really should be our response today, tonight, is to worship Him. We're going to be doing it for all eternity um, as well as other things that we're going to find out in class four, three and four. It's about Jesus. Um, I'll finish off with a quote from Jonathan Edwards. Another quote from Jonathan. We started one with him. He says in a sermon that he preached in 1733, the Christian pilgrim, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of Him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers and husbands and wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. So the most important topic about the four weeks is about heaven. is about God our Redeemer and what He's done for us and the worship that's going to take place for all eternity before Him and of Him. And that needs to be, as we talk about the different things over the next week, that you need to keep coming back to that. We're going to be talking about things like, we're, as, as believers, we're promised that we're going to rule and reign with Him. Um, we get some very descriptive things of what the new Jerusalem looks like. Um, we have some hints as to what we might look like. Um, get some more hair back here on the backside again, hopefully. Um, what will we do? Whatever we do is going to be with the ultimate purpose of worshiping Christ and bringing glory to Him. And so, um, our citizenship is in heaven. Paul tells us in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. And then he tells us in Corinthians that we're but ambassadors for Christ right now. Our passport says heaven. But we're here as ambassadors for Him to to do His will, to be His name, and um, to worship Him here on earth. And so, if you will, join me in prayer and close and, and, and think about these things. So, Lord, we, we thank You. Lord, I, uh, this image of You on the throne that You paint in Scripture for us, we thank You for that, Lord, to know... Uh, the battle's not just won, but Lord, You are high and lifted up and that You are above all things. And for some reason, You decided to save me. And uh, it's inexplicable, but Your grace is uh, abounds. We don't deserve it. Um, but we thank You and we praise You and uh, look forward to that day when... Um, we will see you in, in fullness, Lord. And uh, we, we just desire now to, to just worship you. And Lord, uh, spend these next few weeks learning more about our eternal rest place, but how much rest and how much activity we're going to learn about. 
And uh, it's going to be glorious. We thank You and we praise You. And uh, we come to You based upon Your work, Your name. Amen.